The preaching of God's Word is in Exodus 34, and particularly at verse 7. Read from verse 5 through 8 for context once more, but we'll be focusing on the first part of verse 7. Exodus 34, from 5 to 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty." visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. There we come to that part of God's proclaiming His name at the start of verse 7 when we read, "...keeping mercy for thousands." This is, of course, a precious truth, and as we'll see, it's an extension of what has been said, not only as the whole passage is one grand display of the goodness of God, as God had drawn near to proclaim His name and to, uh, to cause His goodness to pass by in front of Moses that he might see it and be encouraged by it, but particularly this expression, keeping mercy for thousands, is intimately connected to what immediately precedes. So we considered last week the Lord is abundant in goodness and truth. And we saw in that verse that this word translated goodness is most often translated mercy. It is that hesed that we often hear of when people speak of the Hebrew word for His covenant love. It's not only saving love, as we saw last week, for this same is noted in the Psalms, and is applied to His provision of all good things, even to the ungodly. But it is most notably and prominently in the Scriptures associated with His covenant grace. And we see that here. So, abundant in goodness and truth, or in mercy and truth, and then the extending of that thought, keeping mercy, guarding mercy. This word keeping means to preserve. It's to be attentive over to watch and to guard. And so the word is used in various ways in Scripture, most frequently being translated with this notion of watching. But keeping is a very faithful translation. Guarding, preserving, uh, doing that which maintains what is before. So you think of the way we use the word a watch guard. A guard who watches. He's being attentive. Sometimes we speak of uh, uh, keeping something. And when we keep it, we're preserving it. So we uh, get food that would otherwise spoil. And what do we do? We preserve it so that it keeps for some time. And so in our English, we have this same sort of notion of a number of different ideas all related to this one word. And so this keeping is a word expressing an attentive protection and maintaining of what is being kept. Well, what is it that's being kept? It's mercy. Often, as here, it's associated with His covenant. You can see that by way of what follows. That He keeps mercy for thousand. Notice, 
further expressing, as we'll consider later, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. It will by no means clear the guilty, but here's a covenantal expression. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, to the third and fourth generation, and so on. So this mercy is a covenant mercy which is kept, preserved, watched over, and maintained for whom? For thousands. Of course, this is not meant to be literally enumerated, but it is meant to express multitudes, perhaps even multitudes of generations is in the mind. You'll see how our English translation takes up the idea of number and generation at the end of verse 7, unto the third and to the fourth generation. That notion supplied by way of consequence of what's being stated. It could be that the text is implying the same about thousands, thousands of generations. And we can see that idea, of course, in a variety of places explicitly as well. For instance, in Deuteronomy and chapter 7, you see this notion that's mentioned with reference to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and there at verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. All of those words in the Hebrew text. And so there is scriptural Uh, ground for understanding this expression referring to the same. You can see it as well. We hope to sing later from Psalm 105. And there at verse 8, you can see the idea expressed likewise. Psalm 105 and there at verse 8. He hath remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations which covenant He made with Abraham and His oath unto Isaac, confirm the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. It seems like this is the main point of what's being expressed. That God's keeping of mercy for thousands is an expression to extend not only the numbers, but to give some sort of concrete idea of its uh, continuance, its everlasting character, that it is that He is abundant in this mercy and truth, His faithfulness. And it's so abundant, it's to thousands, whether generations or multitudes is not the preeminent focus, but what is preeminently in focus is that God is watching over faithfully His mercy to multitudes. Now this expands our notion of God's kindness. He's not, as it were, this very narrow and embittered person looking over His riches and saying, well, uh, I'm only going to give it to a few. But rather, the notion is, look how extensive His kindness is to many. Now it's true, of course, that there are multitudes who perish in their sins, and we'll touch on that in time to come. But here, the forefront of thought is upon the riches of His faithfulness, and that He's, as it were, keeping that covenant mercy and maintaining it 
so that multitudes might enjoy it. That's what's behind this. It's expressing again His goodness, His mercy, His grace. So we wish to look at this in three ways. Firstly, looking at the mercy He is faithful to keep. Secondly, how He is faithful to keep it. And lastly, to whom He is faithful to keep it. These three things from the text before us. The mercy He's faithful to keep how He's faithful to keep it, and to whom He is faithful to keep it. So let's look then firstly at this mercy He's faithful to keep. Keeping mercy for thousands. This word mercy, as we surveyed a bit last week, is a word that speaks of His genuine and cordial goodness to men, unworthy men, men who are not worthy of the least mercy. Indeed, we are given the words to confess unto God, I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies. Think of the least of God's mercies so far as we might understand them. The slightest relieving of pain, discomfort, even an illness, Though our illness is still, as it were, racking our bodies, we have a momentary's, uh, momentary relief. We perhaps have something catching our throat. We cough and we're able to breathe clearly for a breath only to find it return. That's a small mercy. But it is a mercy. And it's a mercy that none of us is worthy of experiencing. Why is that? What's behind all of this wondrous proclamation It's, of course, that you and I, by our sins, deserve God's wrath. That's what we deserve. We deserve His judgment. When we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the wonder of what's being proclaimed. We lose sight of the depth and the riches and the blessedness of all that's before us. And it becomes just the background noise in our religious experience. Mercy, goodness, kindness, salvation, grace, Love, faithfulness, all of these words so frequent in the Bible become nearly nothing to us when we neglect to remember what we deserve. And so when we speak of God's mercy that He's faithful to keep, we have to emphasize that it is an undeserved and unmerited and indeed that which is infinitely above us regarding His kindness, His grace, and as we've seen in our opening, His covenant promises. And so surely there is kindness in all that He holds forth in His mercy, but it's specifically in context His covenant mercies that are before us. Notice how this sentence carries on even in the English. So you have that He's abundant in goodness and truth. Here's the extension. Keeping mercy for thousands. Here's the extension. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so on. And so it's bringing us to this pointed consideration of the forgiveness of our sins. One of the pinnacle things of God's great covenant mercies. That He not only should be our God, but He should be the God who forgives 
our iniquity, our corruption, our defilement, our wickedness, our transgressions against His law, our sin, our willful waywardness. We read of this a bit, didn't we? When we read earlier and saw indeed how God recounted in Nehemiah 9, indeed His people recounted, how many ways God's people had turned and yet He was willing to forgive and bless them. Why? Because He had made a covenant that He would be faithful to. It's this mercy that is specifically before us. That He is that God who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will dwell with you. You go back to Nehemiah 9 and one of the staggering thoughts is as God's people stiffen their necks, they turn their shoulder, they run away from God, and yet it says God did not forsake them. Why? Because He had sworn with an oath, I will be your God. You will be My people. And so His covenant is this faithful, established blessing to His people. And in that covenant are found and bound up as in a bundle all of the riches that we could ever desire as far as spiritual need is concerned. So you think for a moment. You know, men in temporal things, they need food, drink, clothing. And we see Christ, of course, saying, listen, as you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all of that will be added to you. And we can find, we don't need to and our time right now, but you can go through and see the very same promises in the Old Testament that God will provide to His people what is needed. But then you find that which transcends the temporal need. And He says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to show you the way of pardon. I'm going to show you the way of peace. And I'm not only going to give you a temporal sign of promise, the promised land, but I'm going to remind you that you're pilgrims and sojourners even in the promised land because there's a greater world to come. So you read the Psalms. Psalm 16, Psalm 18. And what's the hope of the psalmist? That though I perish and die, yet when I awaken, when I come alive again at the resurrection, I'll see you in glory. What was Job's great hope? It wasn't just that he would be restored. In fact, that was not his great desire. His great confidence was that the worm should eat his body, yet in his own body, with his own feet, he should stand on the last day and behold the glory of God. And that is given in within God's covenant. God's covenant secures to us all of these things. Indeed, there's not one promise related to salvation that is not related to this blessed truth, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And so the mercy is faithful to keep is all about these merciful provisions within the covenant. Just to get some clarity, uh, some specificity, you can see this if you turn to Ezekiel 36. Covenant promises. What are some specific things that are therein included? Notice in verse 25, Ezekiel 36.25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Ye shall be clean from all your filthiness. From all your idols will I cleanse you. So it's not an outward washing, 
but a spiritual washing. By the way, which of course, notice the language of this washing, is a sprinkling that shall be upon them. And it should not surprise us that at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, He came down upon them. And so, of course, just as an aside, why would we not understand the sign that signifies these things, baptism, likewise exemplifying the sprinkling and the pouring of the thing signified? But notice, moreover, so here's a promise of cleansing from sin, rebellion, and then a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Verse 27, I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and so on. We could go through the whole chapter and see various things related to both Old Testament uh, uh, matters of the promised land, but even how they relate to these uh, most basic and most needed spiritual provisions all supplied us by means of His covenant. Now take that for a moment and consider. What if you had every other kind of blessing and yet didn't have these covenant blessings? What good would it be? Well, you'd get, of course, what Christ says. What good is it if a man should inherit the whole world, gain all the world, possess all the world, and yet forfeit his soul? And yet think for a moment what the world in its blindness, its willful and glad blindness, desires. It desires to gain the world. And where it might give lip service to spiritual concerns and the revival of a form of stoicism in our day and discipline and learning about you know, all these different things, it has some lip service to spiritual insight, yet there's no desire to have the spiritual provision of what really is needed and which God provides. So here's the point. The mercy which God is faithful to keep is the greatest mercy that anyone could ever have. Because if it were only temporal blessings, though we don't deny that He keeps those things for us, if that were all that mattered, what good would it be for us after death? But these things which He preserves for us, keeps for us, protects for us, brethren, here you start to see how it was that the martyrs could be glad. Just read every once in a while the lives of the English martyrs. You think of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and others, Thomas Cranmer, and how they actually had this elation to suffer for Christ. They were glad and counted it their privilege. And when they were uh, ridiculed and when they were challenged and when they were warned of the great grief, it's not that they denied those things, but they knew with a firm persuasion that at the midst of their most desperate need, God would not forsake them. What were they convinced of? This, that God is faithful to keep His mercy. Brethren, is not the case that this is one of the things that we're ready to affirm with our lips and not about with our heads. And yet, so soon as we get into the midst of trials, so soon as we get into the midst of difficulties, it's the thing that we're not sure of. Is God faithful to keep 
His promises to us. Inclusive, of course, of the forgiveness of our sins. Sins become aware. We become aware of our sins, rather. And we start to wonder, will it be that God would forgive me? I'm just now seeing how drastically I've sinned against Him. How perverse my way has been before God. How is it that I can have any assurance that He will forgive me? And yet, think of this for a moment. The Lord is the one who is regularly asserting His faithfulness about those mercies that we're most prone to doubt. 1 John, of course, chapter 1, and there at verse 9. What are we told? If we confess our sins, He is what? Hopefully you can complete the thought. If not, you can hear it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice that language. He is faithful. That's what's being presented here. He's keeping it. He's watching it. He's preserving it. He's not going to deny what He's promised. But we say, my sins are significant. I've sinned for years that I thought were not that big of a deal. I've sinned repeatedly, even after professing faith. And so surely, God would refuse to forgive me. Only if God did not keep, guard, and preserve His mercy. What about sanctification? What about the fact that He's called us to enjoy fellowship with God in Christ? What about our great unworthiness of these things? What about the discoveries of sins in the church and other such things? Well, did you catch how Paul begins one of his most searching epistles against a church? which was tolerating sin, which was engaged in sin. And what did he say to them to begin his epistle? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says to them that God, of course, who is preserving them, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is Faithful. If you and I looked at the church of Corinth, we would have seen all of this bickering. And even as Paul did, and was disturbed by it, frustrated, burdened, broken, enraged by it, we would have seen things which would have discouraged us. And yet Paul goes back and presents to the Corinthians where their hope is found. Not in their giftedness, ability, and so on, but in God who is faithful, keeping His mercy as He's promised. Brethren, we could multiply concrete instances. Afflictions. Is God faithful then to keep His mercy to us? Is it not earlier in this book of Exodus that His people were groaning in great difficulty? And what was said at the beginning of Exodus? God heard their cries and their groaning. He had not forgotten the covenant made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And brethren, here's the great truth. He has not forgiven that co- forgotten that covenant with us either. He is faithful to preserve it. Well, secondly then, how is it that He is faithful to keep it? This covenant mercy, this bundle of all blessings, all summarized, I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. How is it that He is faithful to keep it? Well, we can say one thing that it's not, 
It's not by any mechanical or merely outward way. He doesn't just say it to people and then they just carry on with their sins and they say, well, I'm in God's covenant, I'll be okay. That is not something about God's faithfulness because within God's faithfulness is the promise that He will save and uh, so on those who trust Him. So think of His exhortation in Deuteronomy when He says, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. He's calling them, presenting to them this truth. I've given a promise that calls for you to respond. I'm giving you a promise that is pleading with you to turn to Me. And remember when we read in Nehemiah 9, when was it that God fulfilled and kept His mercy and showed it to His people? It was when they turned to Him and called upon Him. What's the point? It's not by His saving of all that are outwardly concerned in the covenant. That's not a challenge to His faithfulness when He doesn't do that. But rather, it is His providing this covenant and saying, as I have given Myself in this Word to you and by signs to you and displays to you, so I'm calling you to take Me as your God, to trust in Me. And so when that's done, it's as if all of these blessings now are handed over and bestowed upon us. So in some sense, it's like this. It's as if the groom at the wedding says, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. All that I have is now yours. Now, it doesn't matter if the woman stands there for a second, ten minutes, be awkward, of course, in our culture, but what takes hold of all of those things and makes those things hers is then when she says, and I take you to be my husband. Now at that point, What's going to be tested is the man's faithfulness to keep his promise that he's made to her. Because he said on the outset, he pursued her and says, I'm taking you. Everything I have is now yours. I forsake every other woman. I forsake every other thing so that I may serve you. And when she says, I take you, at that moment, it is now upon the man to prove his word. Our culture, of course, displays how frequently that falls apart. But here's the question, of course. Is God one who fails to keep His promises? Is it not rather that He exhorts us with such exhortations, open wide thy mouth that I may fill it? He says, test me. Call upon me. Give unto me. And see if I will not bless you. Right? And again and again, what does His Word prove? His people call upon Him. And what is He faithful to do but to preserve and to keep and to provide all of the things that He's promised to His people? And so the way that He keeps His mercy, that He preserves His mercy, is by bestowing His mercy upon those who call upon Him. You can see this again if you turn to Ezekiel 36. This is nothing peculiar to Ezekiel, but it is tremendously illustrative of this principle throughout the Scriptures regarding God's covenant. 
God has given many promises opening His covenant to His people in Ezekiel 36, and of course for us today as well. So we've already read the relevant section. You could read more, of course, that would be relevant. But notice then verse 37, if you back up to verse 36 at the very end, I the Lord have spoken and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord, verse 37, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. There's the key. God's covenant promises are just those. They're promises to which He says, now call upon Me and see that I will do it. Call upon Me that I may apply these to you. This is why we have it in Romans. All that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does He do within His covenant? He makes His name known. He's opening and showing and disclosing and saying, here's everything I'm offering to you. Here's everything I'm providing you. Let me show you this blessing and that blessing and this and this and the other. And all of this is for you. Now call upon Me and I will give it to you. To your experience. To your provision. To your enjoyment. You know, sometimes we go to museums of things that interest us. Of course, sometimes things that don't. But the things that interest us, we're going through, we're looking and saying, look at all these things. And you imagine the tour guide taking us through something that rather uh, interested us and uh, things that we've studied and thought about and read about and seen pictures of perhaps and going through and giving us this very intimate tour of all of these details. And at the end... The tour guide says, I'm not just the tour guide, I'm the owner of these things. And I'm offering them every single one to you. We would be shocked by such a thing. But brethren, here is what God's covenant does for us. God opens. That's what He's doing. He's proclaiming His name to us. All of His goodness. And He's saying, I preserve it. I keep it. I hold it out. And the one who now calls upon me, they have it for them forever. Brethren, here is the need for faith. Faith that would call upon Him who has proclaimed His name to us. And so, the way He keeps His mercy, we can think of it this way, is He preserves it for those who call upon Him for it. And here's the great encouragement, of course, is that in God's Word, He has given us rich promises and He has given us promises of forgiveness. He has given us promises of sanctification. He's given us promises for the increase of joy and peace and promises of enjoyment of fellowship with Christ. All of these are promises to which we nod our heads and say, that's true, I understand it. But then it begs the question, or it raises the question for us, am I asking God for those things? Not am I affirming those things, not am I saying yes, those are true, but am I actually taking hold of them? Because He's holding them out. That's how He's preserving. He's protecting it. Not letting one of those blessings escape, but He's holding them out. Everyone. And says all of them are extended to you. How do we have that? I will be your God. You will be my people. Think of the way the Psalm 23 says it. 
The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. And then it outlines all of these blessings in the midst of, the, uh, of my enemies. He's with me. As I go through the valley of the shadow of death, He's with me. He provides me nourishing food and oil which uh, uh, is anointing my head. He follows me with goodness. He preserves me with goodness. And on the last day, He'll welcome me into His most glorious dwelling place. All of these things are preserved, not one of them failing. We read of those who have spoiled their enemies. They overtake them and there's plunder and they grip and they grab all that they can take. But you can almost imagine it. As they do it, coins are spilling out and jewels are dropping. And yet they're so satisfied to have the riches that they can hold in their arms. But with God, not one jewel falls out. He preserves everyone and says, they're all maintained for you. The treasury is full and everything in that treasury is open to you in and through Jesus Christ. Think of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Christ says, this is what? The new covenant in My blood. What's the significance of that? The whole of every covenant blessing he says, is now ratified and as I'm the one who swore, as I'm the one who is the testator that I've died, the inheritance is now opened unto you. Every single blessing is now available to you. This is one of the great blessings of the new covenant that it is with greater riches and greater clarity and greater light. Not something different, but something with greater strength and clarity and blessedness to the one who believes. But notice, he doesn't just say it's open. He says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And then what does he do? He says, drink ye all of it. What's he saying? Take it. It's for you. Take it. So the way he preserves it is by maintaining these blessings and maintaining them, displaying them to us in His Word, of course, and then saying to us, they're for you. This leads us then thirdly, to whom is He faithful to keep these things? We have the word thousands, as we noted, a word signifying multitudes, which is to remind us that this is not limited to a small number comparatively, but rather an innumerable Host. We get pictures of this in the book of Revelation. Of course, there is in chapter 5, 11, there is a mixture of angels included in this number. But notice that John says in Revelation 5, verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. So here is the church represented. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So the whole innumerable host is there with the angels. You have something similar in Revelation 7 and verse 9. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, 
of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. This glorious focus upon the Lamb. So we see here, of course, the truth that it is preserved for multitudes. But the multitudes, who are they? But they that call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repeated in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, of course, quoting from the Old Testament. But you'll notice something to see some of these things brought together. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, notice this covenant faithfulness extended to all the nations. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children. Now, this is, of course, that covenant statement. But notice, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So notice a couple of things. Here is... Peter calling upon all Jews and Gentiles to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this promise is unto them and all those that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So there are a couple of things that we should emphasize. Ultimately, those that will call upon the name of the Lord are those whom the Lord will not only call with the Gospel, but call effectually with His irresistible grace. So it's interesting, Romans 10, of course, follows Romans 9. Romans 9 has one of the clearest testimonies of the Lord's sovereignty in His grace, saving whom He chooses. And yet, what happens when He has chosen one? He then in time renews them so that they call upon the name of the Lord. And then what happens? When that happens, all of these blessings, which have been preserved from before the foundation of the world, are now handed over. And God says, as it were, in Christ, enjoy each one. And so, brethren, He is faithful to those who call upon Him, as the Psalms say, to those who call upon Him in truth. Those that call upon Him, of course, are those whom He calls with the power of His grace. Well, brethren, a few things we can close with this evening. God is faithful to His covenant promises. And so it then would be for our good to learn those promises to which He is faithful. Here's why. Though God is rich in mercy and certainly blesses us above and beyond our faith, He ordinarily bestows the experience of blessings in accordance to our faith. What do we mean? God has not given us His Word as some accessory. So you think of accessories that we put on. You know, we might be getting dressed up to go to a wedding and we 
have our clothes and everything, and then we think about accessories we're going to wear, you know, or a money clip that a man's going to wear, or a certain bracelet that a woman's going to put on. Well, the accessory, you can go with it. You don't have to. It's there as something of uh, an appendix, as it were, to everything else that's the main feature. But we often treat God's promises as accessories or appendices or extras that we don't really need. When in fact, the Bible is God's provision to us displaying precisely what we need to know in order that we may then be stirred up by His grace to lay hold of His promises, to plead them before Him, to enjoy then the riches of all that He's promised to us in Christ. All the promises of God are yea and in Christ. Amen. So God is saying, yes, everything I've promised is in Christ. To which then we say, Amen. And we receive those things. So what's the point? If you wish to grow in the enjoyment of His mercy, which He is preserving for you, then you and I have need to make diligent search of the Scriptures to see those particular promises that we may then petition Him for Christ's sake to bestow upon us. Because remember, these things come to us, as Ezekiel 36 illustratively says, yet for this will I be inquired of by the house of Israel. So in other words, we need to learn His promises and then we need to turn them into prayer. So when we discover a promise, we document it, we think about it, we pray for understanding, but we don't stop there. We don't just read a good book about it and say, oh, I've understood and i figured out more. We then take it to God and say, you've been preserving this for me. Perhaps as a believer, you struggle with assurance. You'll find promises in God's Word that He is willing to provide assurance. And so what do you do with that? Well, you learn the promise and you plead the promise. All of us as Christians will be those who are ashamed by sins we discover and we're overwhelmed by sins that are present and we then start to say, well, there's no hope. All the while ignoring God has promised us sanctification. But most of the world thinks, well, since it's a promise, it's just going to happen. When in fact, those promises call for faith. They call for us to call upon Him that He then would gather glory to Himself by bestowing the very thing He's been preserving for us. Think of how Christ says it, or James says it, ye have not because ye ask not. You don't have it because you don't ask it. Now let's be very clear. This is not a pathway into the name it, claim it heresy that plagues much of the face of the world today sweeps through all sorts of places and yet everywhere it sweeps it brings up temporal carnal desire only to leave it empty in the end so it goes to third world countries and it deceives multitudes and then when all of those big name banners are old and moth-eaten the same tragic realities plague those who heard those heresies this is not that This is looking for those specific, merciful promises that God says, I will give this to you. I have promised this to you. And brethren, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of sanctification, the promise of the enjoyment of His fellowship 
transcend a whole acre or more full of all sorts of luxury cars. It transcends multi-million dollar mansions. It transcends private jets and the finest wine. It transcends all of that. And so as carnal men, you long for those things. Spiritual men long for those things that God holds forth. Learn the promises that your soul may call upon Him and enjoy the riches which He gives us in Christ. Brethren, if God is faithful keeping His mercies, then you have a cause of certainty in the midst of all uncertainties. How am I going to get this done? What's going to happen here? How do I know this is going to work out and all these things? We don't know all the details. We admit that. But we know, as one of our brothers prayed this evening, that He causes all things to work together for the good of them, those that love Him, who are the called according to His purpose. How do we know that? How can we look death in the eye? How can we receive the doctor's word about some illness? How can we face children who go backwards and confuse themselves? How can we face a world that seems to grow more and more miserable and say, yet I know that God will indeed work even these things together for the good of those that love Him. Think of that. He works them together for the good of those that love Him. What's that saying? He's keeping His mercy for His people. He will preserve it. Nothing will upend it. No trial, no tragedy, no travesty, nothing will challenge or strip from His hands even the least of His mercies. He preserves them all for us. So what do we do? We then go to Him and say, You're faithful. Provide me that which I stand in need of. Give me this promise and that which You have promised as well. Brethren, the end of knowing that He is faithful in mercy to us is that we then would come to Him and ask Him for it. But of course, that has a greater end. That He would gather glory to Himself in displaying His faithfulness. If you go back to those passages in Revelation, what will you find? Those thousands of thousands, those multitudes which no man can number, what are they all focused on? Praising God who is faithful in His mercy. One day you will be with that multitude if a believer in Christ and your your voice will join the others and praise Him then. Would it not be right for us to praise Him now as we call upon Him for His mercies. Well, would you stand with me for prayer? Let us 